Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. All right. Some are awake. Let's try it again. Good morning. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome. My name's Chad Wiles. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, or if you're new today, welcome. We're so glad and thankful you came to worship with us. Um, it's really cool to, to be thinking right now that we have a whole other team in Buenos Aires working with Oikos Church 5,000 miles away, leading them in worship as well. And so our church, 5,000 miles apart, we're worshiping God today and encouraging uh, each other in this way. And so thankful to be here, grateful to get a chance to come back and, and do one of our counseling sermons again. As you, some of you know, what we do is every six to eight weeks I come up here and we work through something that's very practical but very deep into our hearts to help bring forth freedom and allow us to worship God at a much deeper level. And so today we're going to be doing that again and we're going to be covering the subject of idolatry. Everybody's so excited about that, right? <laughs> All the faces were like, oh man. Because when you think about idols, it's kind of a confusing thing because a lot of us, we think about kind of Old Testament, right? These carved images or these ashram poles that were set up for fertility or for rain to come and all these things that, that would happen. And so idolatry seems like this distant in the past, something that we don't really deal with in our day and age today. But that's just not true. It's just they've changed to very different things. And so we're going to spend some time in the first little while here really setting up defining idols, how they work, until we get into to the idol we're going to cover today. And over the next four times that we do this, we're going to cover four different types of idols that impact us all at a very deep motivational level. So we got a lot to cover, so here we go. All right, so let's talk about idols first and foremost. So what are idols? Let's, let's define them. Uh, the one thing that we should think about in terms of idolatry is that I idols can be anything. Idols are any person or thing regarded with blind admiration, adoration, or devotion. That's what idols are. They can be anything. In our culture today, they could be things like movie stars or our favorite sports team, right? Many of us, ugh, that hurt a little bit. Yeah, right. Uh, sports are not bad. Movies are not bad. But anytime we put something in the place of God that we adore above Him, they become idols. They can be our favorite band. They could be a family member. They could be, you name it, technology, social media. Insert anything you can think of, and it can be an idol. Right? So in other words, idols are just objects of our worship. So what is worship? If you haven't been with us before, let me redefine that for us. Worship is any person or thing that we seek, serve, sacrifice for, spend our time and money on, speak about most, and trust in most. Let me say that one more time. Worship is any person or thing that we seek, serve, sacrifice for, spend our time and money on, speak about most, and trust in most. And you're probably thinking through your head right now, that could be anything. Yes, it can be, right? Because that's how God has designed us. God has designed us to worship. That's meant to take place in Him. That's why you see our first pillar is treasuring Jesus, because God should be above all things. He should be our treasure. He should be the thing that we worship. He should be the one that we say, He is the one that we seek. He is the one that I serve. He is the one I sacrifice for. He is the one that I spend most of my time and my money on. He is the one that I think about most. And He is the one that I trust in most. But the truth is, that's not true for most of us. Right? And we tend to worship idols as a means really to serve ourselves. Idol worship is really just pridefulness in us. We are trying to serve ourselves through making our own gods out of the things that are created by God to be in the place of God. That's what we do. We can't help ourselves. We were created to worship, so we will. We will. So I want to look through just a few truths about idols that help us understand what they are, and then we're going to understand how they function. Okay? So here's just a few truths about idols. Number one, idols have something that we want. Whatever it is that we set up as our idol in the place of God, it has something that we want. It's either fame, popularity, security, happiness, hope, love. Insert whatever comes to your mind. There's something that we want. There's something that we believe will give us happiness. There's something that we believe will give us hope. There's something that we believe that if we have it, it will satisfy all things and all desires. And so we trust in that. That makes an idol. So idols have something that we want. 
Idols also promise to give us hope and security that we're looking for. That's the big promise of an idol. It's going to give me the hope and security I'm looking for. If I get that job, if I get that career, that, that's going to be the thing that's going to provide for me and give me the money and the security, and I'm going to be able to have a retirement, and that's going to, that's going to take care of me and take care of my family, and I can trust in that thing. Or if I could just get married, and this person, this relationship, it just would work out, and we live happily ever after, and everything's going to be great, and somebody's going to take care of me, and we're going to be a partner forever, and it's going to be awesome. There's hope. There's security in that. Even down to, if I put this really cool thing on Facebook and everybody, like, I get all these likes. Like, man, I really did something today. Right? Even though most of those pictures aren't even true. <laughs> kind of crop them just a little bit. Like, that's a little better than it actually happened. But who, you know, let's not get, let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? So, whatever it is, they promise hope, security, even, it, even in short, momentary ways or long-term ways. But here's the truth that is the most hurtful, is that idols lie to us. Idols lie. They lie every single time. And essentially because it comes from a place of pride and we set them up so that we could be God to serve ourselves, we are essentially lying to ourselves. That's the craziest part about it. We saw this in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. God said, don't eat of this one tree. You can have everything. You get to walk with me, get to be with me, we get to be in communion together. Everything's provided for. He walks in the cool of the day every single day. It's awesome. And then Satan comes and just says, well, he doesn't want you to eat of that because it's going to make you like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. You're not going to die. You're going to be like him. Oh, that little promise. Oh, I want to be like God. And then they, they trusted it. And what happened? It was a lie. And so the big truth that we need to understand about idols are idols promise everything, but they actually take away everything. Idols promise to give you everything that you want, hope, and desire in, but it actually enslaves you and takes away everything that you could possibly have. It takes away all freedom. I put all my hope in that job, and then it takes over my life, and it takes over my mind, and I, I just spend all my time on it, and I'm always worried about losing it, and I'm always worried about advancing, and Next thing you know, I'm a slave to this job, and my family's breaking and falling apart, and I don't have a marriage anymore, and my kids don't really want anything to do with me, and what happened? That thing that I thought was going to satisfy tore, tore everything away. Idols lie. They do every time. <clears throat> so idols promise everything, and they take away everything. So that's what's true about them. How do they function? So since our hearts are worshiping hearts, and we are idol-making machines... We can turn anything into an idol, as we've talked about. So, this makes idols of our hearts very complex. Sitting here listening to this right now, you can be like, I don't even know where to start. Like, <laughs> I might have an idol, I might be idol have an idolatry right now, I don't even know. Right? There's, it could be anything. So, in order to find freedom from our idols, we have to first understand how they function. And so, one, area, one place that I've found that's been a really helpful tool to me and... and in, in my research has been, I think, closest, the closest thing I can find to a really great explanation of truly what the Bible says about it is from a book called Counterfeit Gods. It was written by Tim Keller. And in this book, he really helps us break down how idols function. And so I want us to look at that together today to help set us up for what we're going to talk about today. Without understanding these things, it's going to be difficult for us to really attack anything individually. Okay? So, there are two levels of idols, two different levels. The first level is deep idols. Deep idols are the result of sin corrupting our deep motivational desires. See, God has put within us these deep motivational desires. Desires for power, approval, comfort, and control. These are the four main things that we see. And those aren't bad, they're just meant to be satisfied in Him and seeking His control, His power, His approval, and His comfort. But when we're, our sin corrupts that and we want to be God, we try to seek those things for ourselves. And these deep motivational desires drive the second layer, which is called surface idols. These things are the things that we seek and serve in order to satisfy our deep idols. These are things like money, relationships, kids, success, fame. Insert anything else. And this helps us break it down. And let me kind of give you an example. Let's use the subject of money. 
to kind of show you how they might function differently. Because all of us can make money an idol, but we might be making it an idol for different reasons. If we're driven by power, maybe money is a way for us to have control over others. We have people, well, all of a sudden we're the boss and we have the position and the power and the money and we get to kind of tell people what to do and how to do it and we feel good about being in control of others, right? Or if we're driven by approval, we might use our money to gain favoritism with people. We might be the life of the party, the guy throwing parties, the giving gifts, the things to make people happy and it, and it gives us that desire for approval that we have. Or if we're driven by comfort, this may be the thing that we use to buy all the greatest amenities and the things of life of ease and setting up that retirement plan so I can retire early and sit on a beach and just uh, sip on some cocktails and watch the waves, right? Or if we're driven by control, it's, it's the thing that it's going to give me the safety and the, and, and the hope. I'm going to build up a, a great savings account so if anything happens, I can pay for it and get myself out of that. I'm going to set up all these retirement accounts so I can always be safe and then I'm going to pay off everything and, and money is this way. I hold on to it very tightly because it's the thing that I'm hoping in for safety and security. So money can be, that service idol can cover any of them and how we function with is driven by these deep motivational desires and they don't usually stand alone. We usually when we really dig into it we have more than one going on. Um, but we're going to take them one at a time and look at them in their extreme version as we go. So with all that being said, as we've set the groundwork. Let's talk about control today. We're going to talk about the deep idol of control. And so before we dig into it, let's pray. Let's pray that God gives us wisdom and reveals to us what he wants to seek. Father God, we come to you. And Lord, when we dig into these things, sometimes they can be very sensitive to us. Sometimes it's hard to even face them. And so I pray that you would be in our service right now, that you would be close to us, that you would give us wisdom, that you would reveal our hearts, that you would give us helpfulness, that you would speak through me, that anything that I say is of you, and God help us to walk out of here free and to trust in you for control. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, many of us can relate to this struggle of control, right? It's a reason for a lot of our fears and a lot of our dreads and a lot of our anxieties and some of us even even struggle with things like panic attacks and things because of this deep rooted issue. So the belief of control is this. I kind of wrote it out very simply. The belief is if I have control then things will be okay and I will be satisfied. If I have control then things will be okay and I will be satisfied. That's the core belief. We can break that down into many other things. That's just kind of this overarching belief of control. Many of us can relate to this need because there's all kinds of areas in our lives that we want to have control over. Our finances, our families, our relationships, our futures. And that's not necessarily a bad desire. Don't hear me wrong. Like I said in the beginning, our, this deep motivational drive of control was put in us by God to be found in God. The problem is we seek it in the things that He's created instead of in the Creator. So wanting things to go well, wanting our futures to go well, these things are not bad once, but they become sinful when they become God things. Right? And so the big issue with this deep idol of control is we also know deep down we're not in control. So it's kind of this exercise in futility. Constantly feeling out of control, trying to grasp for control, knowing that I'm not in control, trying to grasp for control, knowing I'm not in control, and you can see how it could drive someone crazy. And some of you feel like, that. Ah, I feel crazy. <laughs> well, that's because of that. Stuff happens. Stuff messes up our plans and, and gets in the way of our control. So if you struggle with the out of control, that previous statement I just made made you a little bit nervous, a little bit queasy in your stomach, right? But I want to look at today how this plays out. I want to remind you quickly, we've done a sermon in the past called Belief Matters, and if you haven't had a chance to check that out, I encourage you to go to our podcast, check that out, because we break down how the heart functions and how belief functions. But I'm going to do a quick review so that as we play this out, we can see that this is how it's playing out in our hearts as God's designed it. 
So we see three things in the Bible when it comes to our hearts. When the Bible talks about our hearts, we see three things that function together. First one is cognition. These are our beliefs and our thoughts. We see this one verse that points that out is Romans 12, 2. Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may, have, that you may prove that what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewal of your mind, what you think, your thoughts, is part of the heart. The second category is affection. Our desires, our emotions are in this category. So cognition and affection. Affections, we see James talk about it in James 4, 1 through 4. And if you've been with us for a while, we just did a sermon series on James, so you're very familiar. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source, your, uh, the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. We see our, those passions and desires at war within us in our hearts. And our third uh, thing that's in our hearts is volition. This is our motivations into action, what comes out of the heart into action. We see Jesus speak about it in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He says, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. And you can't separate them. What you believe impacts how you feel and your desires, and that impacts how you act, and that impacts what you believe, and so on and so forth. Right? And so we've already talked about the belief of control. Let's look at the emotions or the affection side of it. How does that play out? Well, the emotion of control really deals with the fear of loss of control. See, the promise of the idol of control, as we talked about, is the ultimate happiness and contentment comes from achieving complete control. If I can get everything completely in control the way that I feel that it should be, then I'll be content and satisfied. But the problem is we're never completely in control, and so we're constantly dealing with these emotions that come with the loss of control. The first emotion that we're going to talk about right now is fear and dread. Fear and dread. This comes from things that we ultimately don't want to happen, that we're afraid will happen. We have this deep fear of them becoming true and being real. Sometimes this comes from experience. Sometimes we've had things in our lives, tragedies that have actually happened. And so therefore, from that experience, it's tough not to fear and dread those things happening again. Or we're very aware of our vulnerability to things happening, maybe more than others. And that's not lost on me. I understand how difficult that is I, in my own life as well. But sometimes we turn that into a desire to take control then and to, to try to get rid of that fear and dread. Sometimes it comes from real possibilities that could happen. You know, we've seen it happen in other people's lives, or just we know things can happen. We live in a world that's, that's fallen and sinful, and we hear about terrorist attacks and wars happening and the economy crashing, and car crashes can change your life in an instant. You could just stop breathing at any moment. Like, there's so many things that can happen because we are finite, vulnerable, frail, weak beings. The fact that we even think we could have control is laughable anyway, because so many things could happen. And the fact that we think we could change that by, by trying to have control doesn't make much sense. We don't want to be vulnerable. Fear and dread can really drive out of that, that I don't want to be vulnerable. And that can come from things like, I don't want to be unprepared. Like that thought of like, that, that job interview's coming up, or that thing's coming up at work, or or the family's coming over and like not having things planned out, not having things organized, not knowing what's going to happen next. That test is coming up. I don't know if I've studied enough. I'm probably going to fail. I'm going to fail out of college for sure. Or the family's going to come over and I'm not going to have everything in order. And probably there's gonna, they're going to see that, that there's dirt on the floor and they're going to think I'm a terrible mom or I'm a terrible dad and I don't know what else I'll do. And like so on. Just, things just go through our head and these fears and dread just, just grip our hearts. And it's that fear of being vulnerable. I don't want people to see that I'm weak. I don't want to be in a place where I could be harmed. Right? We see that even in opening up in relationships. 
I want to be a friend, but I don't want to be that close. I don't want to share too much. What will they think of me? I don't want to be in those situations because uh, people might see that I'm not as good as I think that they think I might be. Just these things go through our head and they cause a lot of fear and a lot of dread. <clears throat> My mom, she's a great example of this. She'd love it that I was telling this story right now. <clears throat> Luckily, she lives in Kentucky, 10, miles, 10 hours away, so even if she does get mad, it'll take her a long time to get here, so she'll probably cool off. <laughs> She'll probably cool up. But my mom, she, this is her thing. We talk about it plenty, and she's grown so much in it, so she wouldn't mind. But airplanes are just giant tubes of death <laughs> to my mother. She could come visit. She could be here so much more. Just a quick airplane ride, not even that expensive. But she is for sure, if I get on that airplane, it's crashing. Like, it, definitely. I know no matter how many statistics you share, no matter what you say, no matter how many times you do it, like, that's true for you, but if she gets on that thing, it will for sure explode. And the only way you're getting her on there is if you, like, give her something to make her pass out, and heaven help the stewardess if she wakes up, because she will, <laughs> she will definitely make the plane crash, because she'll tear it apart herself trying to get out of there. It doesn't make any sense, right? But that fear and dread, these things that don't make a whole lot of sense, we can, we can have ourselves. Number two, anxiety. I separated this from fear because you're like, well, fear and anxiety, isn't that the same thing? No, a little bit different. Anxiety is this feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease. It just is there. It just stays there. And it's typically about a minute event or something that's coming up, some uncertain outcome, something that might not even be happening that just could happen. But you just walk around nervous. This underlying tension within your gut that's constantly there. That idea of, what, will I get that job? What if I don't get into that school? What if I fail that class? What if they don't accept me? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? You are what-ifers. Anxious people are what-ifers. Everything's a big what-if that just constantly stays within you and keeps you afraid of moving forward and, and doesn't allow you to be free. It, it, these things just play in your mind constantly, just in the background. And it, you know, typically these can, these can go into some more extreme areas of even panic attacks, right? These fears and anxieties as they build and they grow, and the more we think about them and we allow them to grow, they can form physically into things like panic attacks, right? And we got to be careful about that because this is starting in a, a belief. Belief is very powerful. I can prove that to you because if I were to have a box underneath this podium right now, which I may or may not have, we'll see, <laughs> full of cobras, snakes, and I just dumped it over and let them go wild, this room would explode with people doing all kinds of different things. Many climbing the walls, busting through doors, some melting down, passing out, you know. Some getting close and wanting to touch them because they think it's cool. and all being driven by a belief about what they believe about the snake. Everybody operates differently just because of what they believe, and that's what I'm saying. It causes a physical response. Some people would have a panic attack if I did that, not even getting near to the snake. Nothing actually happening, but a physical response would happen, and when our anxiety becomes real to us, and that, that belief plays in our minds, and it becomes real, you have real physical responses. It happens. And then you wonder, what's wrong with me? Nothing's happening. I don't get it. But I just, I'm panicky. It's in here. The last emotion we'll talk about is depression. This is one we don't think about much when it comes to this idol of control. Depression is severe despondency and dejection, typically felt over a period of time and accompanied by feelings of hopelessness and inadequacy. And the reason why this motivational idol can drive depression is because we acknowledge the loss of control but it leads to hopelessness because we're still trying to have it in ourselves. So you start to think thoughts like, well, there's nothing I can do, so why try? <laughs> Everything's going to fall apart anyway. Why does it even matter? I often say people who struggle with depression, they're halfway there to the right thing. They know that they don't have any control, and they know that they're not in control, and they know that they can't really do anything about anything, and that's all true. But they're just sad that they can't fix it. 
they don't actually turn to the Lord and find it in Him. They're just sad that they can't fix it themselves. And I'm not making fun of that because I've dealt with it myself and I know many of you have felt those feelings, but I'm just trying to help you. You're not especially broken. You just have some idolatry that you're not willing to look at. And sometimes we need help looking at it together. So that's, we've talked about the belief, we've talked about the emotion of control. What about the action? So we talked about everything comes out in action, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, out of the overflow of the heart, we act and we do. So what's the action of control? First one is obsession. We find ourselves becoming obsessive and obsessing over things. We're over-prepared for things, going over every detail over and over again. This way there's no chance of something going wrong, right? You are not last-minute people. <laughs> if you're a person that struggles with the out-of-control, you plan, you've planned out months in advance, probably. You, if, if we're going to have a dinner party, you're thinking about it a week ahead of time. You've, you've thought through every detail, even how the night's probably going to play out, when we're going to eat, when we're going to play games, how we're going to do this, and when everybody's going to leave. The problem is when somebody has a last-minute change, and that blows everything up. You are not last-minute people. If someone calls you and says, ah, I know I was supposed to bring the casserole, but ah, the kids are sick. We're, just, we're not coming, and it's an hour before. You are going to freak out. <laughs> right? <laughs> Blow it all up. We're done. It's over. I can't do it. We're done. Tell everybody not to come. This, everything's ruined. There's nothing. We can't do it. Like, no, not even a thought of like, well, we could just order something in. You know, like, <laughs> no, the plans are over. Right? You hate last-minute phone calls. You hate last-minute changes. If, if your husband or wife comes in and says, drop everything, we're going to go on a trip. <gasps> what? <laughs> what will I wear? What will I do? Where will we go? What are we going to do? How much is it going to cost? <laughs> like, <laughs> I've taken care of it. Well, did you take care of it? Like, <laughs> I'm not sure you took care of it well enough. I need to plan that. <laughs> right? You are laughing because some of you are just like that. You know it. The extreme version of this, psychology would call that obsessive-compulsive disorder. And what we would say, that's just an extreme version of an idol of control. Where as it continues to go and go, it starts to morph into these little superstitious actions and things that we do to try to make ourselves feel good about our days and how it functions. And these are not easy things to turn around, but I'm telling you, in the gospel, they can be turned around. Because we understand where it's coming from and why it's there. Number two, avoiding. So one action is obsessing, the other one's avoiding. We stay out of places and situations that we feel most out of control. I don't want to go to that party. I don't really know anybody. I'm not really sure about that situation. I'm not really sure how that will go. I'm just going to stay home. Because I, I, I can't really control that environment. There's other people there I don't know. I don't really like crowds. I don't really want to go to the store. I don't really want to do this. I don't really want to do that. I only go to places that I feel comfortable and safe because I've been there before and I know who's there and I know how it's going to play out and I can control it. It happens. We avoid things. The extreme version of this is phobias. Many of us have fears of heights or you know, being claustrophobic and fears of tight spaces. And once again, some of these make a lot of sense because bad things can happen in high places and you know, when you're in tight spaces, bad things can happen. So some of these have some rational rationale to it. But I looked up a list of phobias when I was preparing for this, and there's like three or four pages. And some of these are, I don't even understand how you can even have this phobia because there's no rationale to it or any way to fix it. I'll give you three examples just for, just for fun, just to show the extreme ways that these things can go, right? One is anablephobia, fear of looking up. So you would spend the rest of your life like this. I can't look up because I'm too afraid to. <laughs> so that would be a pretty tough life to live because most of life requires me to look up, right? Or barophobia, which is a fear of gravity. So if you live on Earth, that's a big problem, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Or, my favorite, homophobia, phobia, fear of sermons. So, many of you have that one, I know. 
and I appreciate that you had the strength to show up today. <laughs> but we, we joke and we make light of that, but some of these things can go into very extreme places, and some of it can be very debilitating to many of us. And we need to really work on figuring out how to turn that around. Number three, and last one before we get into our passage, I know we've taken a long time to set all this up, but you'll understand why when we get there, is worry. Worry is not an emotion, even though it feels like it might be. It's an action. Dr. Ed Welch, he writes in his book, Running Scared. He's a biblical counselor that um, he's done a great job with this idea of worrying. If you haven't read that book, Running Scared, it's a great book to read. I encourage it, especially if you are a worrier. But he writes some things out that I want to share with you now that I think will, will help us understand it better. One thing he says is, worriers live in the future. It's the preferred time zone of your thought life. Right? What's going to happen next? Well, what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, what could happen? Right? But here's also the problem. Warriors are also pessimistic fortune tellers. So, you see the future in minute, gory details. You see what's going to happen bad. <laughs> and the problem is, if you think that way long enough, some bad things will happen that you did worry about, and so then it makes it even worse because even though you were wrong a hundred times, that one time you were right reinforces the fact that you are a prophet. <laughs> like, that was just, eventually, yes, bad things do happen, so eventually you were going to be right at some point, right? Warriors also, um, worry is believed by the person to be a protection mechanism. It helps protect you. It's your shield from getting hurt. If I imagine the worst, I'll be prepared for it. Worry is looking for control. If I just, if I can see every scenario that could happen bad, I could be prepared for it, and it won't be as bad. And so I'm really helping myself and everyone else around me, for that matter, uh, be prepared for this really bad thing that can happen. All of us have that family member who you don't really have to worry because they worry enough for everyone around you, and they've got you covered, you know? Um, but it is a, a way for control. It's something that we try to do to strive for control. Worriers cannot be reasoned with. No logic will help a worrier, right? They don't listen very well. Just like I was sharing with my mom, it doesn't matter how many stats you show her about airplanes and how much safer they actually are than even car rides. The one time she gets in it, that 1% that could happen will happen, right? There's no reasoning out of worrying. And the reason is, is because warriors are self-centered. Remember when we think back to what we said about idols in the first place, our idols are really things that we put in place to worship and serve ourselves, and so worrying is a way of serving yourself, and so worrying is a self-centered act to protect yourself and control things for yourself. And so when we worry, people listen, and it lets us self-indulge in the worrying even more. I, I want to be reassured. Let me just talk it out. Let's just talk about it one more time. We'll just talk over it one more time. Just tell me it'll be okay. And it's kind of this, it's kind of all about us protecting us mentality. And so we've looked at the belief of control, the emotions and the actions of it, and we've understood these deep idols. So what does the Bible say? This is what matters. We've done all this work in this sermon, and don't worry, we are going to walk through a passage, but I will not take another hour to do so. Everybody's already thinking, like, we're just now getting to the passage? Don't worry. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. So as you're turning there, let's talk about Matthew 6, what's going on here to kind of understand what Jesus is talking about. So in Matthew 6, we're kind of in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of Jesus' most famous sermons. It starts in chapter 5 back then, and crowds from all over are coming. His disciples come close. Crowds are coming around. People have been bringing uh, sick people to him to heal and all these problems to Jesus, and they're all there to hear Jesus and to understand who he is. And so there's this big sermon, and what Jesus is doing in this sermon is he's laying out the practical ethics that he expects his followers to live by in the present age. So he's addressing all sorts of different types of issues, the Beatitudes, the what do we do about lying and lust, and what do we do about money, and what do we do about this, what do we do about that, and he's just laying it out for all of his followers and believers to understand what it looks like to follow and trust Jesus in this present age. And so we drop in in chapter 6, and he's going to be talking about the subject of anxiety. And as you know, worry and anxiety 
tells us what? There's probably an idol of control. And so as we're getting there, we're going to be in chapter 6, starting in verse 25, but I'm going to read it a little bit before it so we can understand what he's talking about before because when he drops into this subject, he starts with the words, for this reason. So we know when we see therefore or for this reason, that means he said something before this that has implications to this. So this is going to help us. And so as in your Bibles, we're in the NASB. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along, please there's some right out in the lobby as you go right out the doors right to your left or right. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, you're welcome to have it for yourself. We'd love for you to have it. And so let's dig in to the Word here for the next few minutes and understand what God has to say about this idol of control. Starting in chapter 19, Jesus is speaking to the crowd. and He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So that's where we start as we get into our passage today. And so we know that the people have been struggling with this idea of wealth, and they're looking to wealth as a means to protect themselves, to really help themselves. And they're not treasuring God over these things. And we know that as we jump into here, because he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. So we can conclude that what the people are struggling with is they're looking to something else besides God to protect themselves in their lives for things about their lives. And he's going to kind of lay out some of the basic things here, right? As to what you will, so he says, do not worry about your life. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body. As to what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, remember, we just talked about it, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, he, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not be worried then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear uh, for clothing, the what-ifs of the world. For the Gentiles, the people who do not believe in the Lord and do not follow Him, eagerly seek all these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus is addressing this issue of anxiety and worry and this worrying about the future and what's going to happen and this self-protectiveness all in this passage. And so we're going to look at three beliefs, three things that you can meditate on and think about that will help crush this idol of control and begin to allow you to seek that control back into our Heavenly Father where it's supposed to be. Number one truth, and some of these are going to seem very simple, but they're very profound is that God cares more about me than I do about myself. That's our first truth that we see here. God cares more about me than I do about myself. And don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that you're something special. It, this is about God. He is all loving. He is all caring. He cares way more about you, and He knows way more about what you need in your life and how He needs to prepare you for His good works that He's designed for you. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, than you could ever think and know about yourself. He's also saying here, it's really not about you. Remember, idols are predicated upon pride and about us being in control and about us having what we want the way we see it. And that doesn't matter. It's not about you. And you don't know what you need. God knows. And He cares more about you than you do yourself. Remember when He asked this question at the end of verse 26, He's 
He says, are you not worth much more than they? As he's talking about the birds of the air. And he's, he's hearkening back to what many of us should know and what these crowds definitely knew is that God created man in his image. Genesis chapter 1. No other creature was created in God's image. No other creature was created for the purposes that man were created for. And so don't you think that you're more valuable than the birds of the air that he provides for every day? Don't you think that God knows and cares? And as we begin to trust this truth and actually believe it, not in theory, not I know that should be true, because many of us, we already know what I just said, but you don't live like it's true. I don't always live like it's true. So don't go in your minds to a place of, well, I already know that. Well, if you're struggling with the things we just talked about, no, you don't. At least you don't believe it. But really believe in this truth. Really believe in that God does care. That God does have what he's created you for in mind. And when we can believe in this, peace starts to come. That out of control begins to get crushed a little bit. And we, start, we stop seeking it for ourselves and we start seeking it in him. Now, this is not a one and done thing. This is a daily, constant meditation of this truth. I gotta be reminded of this constantly. I gotta think about this all the time, and especially when bad things are happening, I gotta re-remind myself that God is not separate from this, that He is in this, and He does care for me, and for those that I love way more than I care for myself, or those that I love, right? I experienced this for myself, and I was tested in this for myself a few years back, because one of my greatest fears and dreads, especially as a father and a husband, is something happening to my family. It's something that I thought about a lot. I'd have these moments of just like, oh, what if like something happened? I'm like at work, I'm like, oh, they're driving around today. Like, what if, what would I do if I come home and they're not there? And if you're a husband and a father, you've had those thoughts, right? And they'd be momentary. It didn't debilitate me from the rest of the day, but it would come pretty frequently. And God really convicted me with this very thing. Do you believe that I love them more than you do? Do you believe that I'm near? And so that faith was tested. When Juliana, my daughter, who's sitting right back there, was only about two or three months old, she had this stomach issue that I'm not going to try to explain scientifically because Marie always reminds me that I explain it wrong every time. <laughs> All I know is it kept putting stuff up in her esophagus and, and basically suffocating her and she couldn't breathe. And Marie found her one day and she was purple and blue and wasn't breathing and called the emergency room. And I remember getting that call while I'm at work and the, the thing that I thought, oh, here it is. That pessimistic fortune teller was true. It's happening. My greatest fear is happening. But in that moment, I began to think and pray about the things that God had been convicting me of and teaching me. <clears throat> so as I'm driving, I'm thinking, God, like, you, you, she's yours. I don't want her, I don't want anything bad to happen, but she's yours. You know, I'm listening to worship music and I'm reminded of those things. And by God's grace and mercy, she's fine. She's here today, obviously. But you don't know how you're going to react. And you don't know how your face is going to be tested until you're in the middle of it. Right? But God was near in those moments. And he taught us a lot through that moment. And he knew that we needed that. Even though I didn't understand it. And, and I'm thankful that my story ends well this time. And I know many of us have stories that didn't end quite as, quite as uh, easily. But the same is true for you, and you need to know that God is near, and that He cares more for you than you care for yourself more than anybody in those moments. You have to. You have to. This has to be real for us as Christians. If it's not real, then when things happen... They'll destroy you. Remember, idols lie. And they promise everything and they take it away. Don't trust it. So, some practical things we can do. Is we meditate on His Word and His character every single day. We remind ourselves of the truths that matter. Truths like this. And we believe it. And we trust it. And we pray.
harder than we've ever prayed. Because our lives depend upon it. And it makes me deeply sad to know there's many of you in here that are struggling with this and don't believe that. Because it will crush you. I don't want that. So, we know that God cares more for us than we care for ourselves. The second truth is that God is in control. We see that in verse uh, 30. God reminds us, he says, listen, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, and then is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. He's the one that clothed them in the first place. He's the one who has made you. <clears throat> he's the one who's given you the future that he's set up for you. He's the one who sustains you. He's the one that gives you breath right now. That's why we can trust that he <clears throat> cares for us. That's why that's a good hope. Because he's the one who's in control of it. So we've got to put our hope in that. This life's not about us. <clears throat> it's not about our agenda. It's about our Father who created us for worship, to worship Him. And He created us for good works. And He created us to know Him and to live for Him. And so we can trust Him. He's in control. Last but not least, because I know it's getting, getting long, and I know this stuff is heavy, <clears throat> is I will be faithful to seek Him in the present. I'll be faithful <clears throat> to seek him in the present. So God cares for us. God's in control. But he'll be faith- we'll be faithful to seek him in the present. See, the out of control is a symptom of our pride and desire to play God. We spend, we spend most of our thought life trying to redeem the past or trying to set up the future. This is what we do as warriors, as people who desire control. Remember we said warriors live in the future, right? They're, they're pessimistic fortune tellers. The problem with this pattern of thought is these two realms are the realms that only God lives in, not us. Remember, we're finite beings. We, we can't control what's going to happen next in five minutes, right? But God, God is omnipresent, which means he's all places at all times. He's sovereign and eternal, which means he rules everywhere at all times, including over all of history. God is not confined to our timeline. We cannot control the future or change the past. All we are responsible for is to live faithfully for God in the present time. That's what we're given. God lives in the eternal realm, not us. We don't have to. Thank God. You can't change the past, and you sure can't change the future or predict it. Right? And that's all God holds us to. He says in verse 33, But seek first His kingdom, meaning God's. And his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All the things you're worried about, God will take care of that. He will take care of that. See, how we live in the present and the choices we make do redeem the past and the fact that we can learn and be different from what, what we learn from our mistakes and our sins. The past has influenced who we are, but it does not define who we become. Ephesians 4 tells us to repent, to put off the old. Put off the old self. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away, and behold, the new things have come. That God, in his love, the fact that he does care for us more than we care for ourselves, and he is in control, he sent his only son, Jesus, that while we were sinful, and that the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it also says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, that Christ came, lived a perfect life as fully man, fully God, And he took our punishment on the cross. He paid for those sins on the cross. He took God's full wrath on the cross. He died and he was raised again on the third day to defeat sin and death so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's our hope. 
That's why we can trust these things that we're talking about today. Because we are His. We have a new identity. That if, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, He is a new creation. That old person, those past mistakes, the things that you've been through, have been redeemed, and they can change by us repenting and changing because of what we've learned from it and trusting in Him for the first time. Or if we already have trusted in Him, continually repenting of those things. Right? And not only how we live in the present redeems the past, but how we live in the present and the choices we make do influence the future. When we make wise choices today, when we think about how can I be faithful today, right now, in this place, the way that God has designed me to be, what does Christ say about this situation? How should I respond to this situation? Let me not worry about how it's going to play out for myself, but let me worry about what's going to bring God the most glory. And when I do that, and when I make those faithful choices and those wise choices, here's what the Bible says. Galatians 6, Paul tells us in verses 6 through 10, Let the one who has taught the word, or it says, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith, when we invest our hearts and our lives into the things that are faithful to God, it will produce fruit. You want to worry about the future and a better outcome? Invest your heart in the Lord and trust in His control and His future and the things that He's put before you. So as we close and as the band comes up, I know it's been long, I know it's been heavy, but I hope it's been helpful. Here's my encouragement. Repent. Repent of your pride and the idol of control. Because if you struggle with it, it's pride. And it's okay. Humility brings forth freedom. Repent. And accept the gracious truth that you're not in control, nor do you need to be. You don't have to be. You're not. Because God's rule over you is a part of His grace in your life that leads to peace. Seek His control. Worship God. Treasure Him above everything else. Trust in His goodness and His grace. Trust in His control. <clears throat> and be faithful today. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father God, I pray that what we spoke about today is helpful. I pray that it leads to repentance. <clears throat> I pray that it leads to people who are faith in you and trust you with everything. That we would find our hope and our joy in you. And that we wouldn't believe the lie of control. That we wouldn't trust in idols. That we would trust in you and you alone. And for many of us, maybe today is the first time we've, we've heard this. Maybe today is the first time we're ready to repent. But let it be a time in our lives where we look back to that's when we became free. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.